We are reading from 1 Samuel 25, verses 2 to 42. These are God's words. And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel, and the man was very great, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, which means fool, and the name of his wife, Abigail, which means exaltation. And the woman was of good understanding and beautiful, but the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was as his heart. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, and David sent ten young men, and David said unto the young men, Get you up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus shall ye say to him, Life and peace be unto thee, and peace be to thy house, and peace be unto all that thou hast. And now I have heard that thou hast shearers. Thy shepherds have now been with us, and we did them no hurt, neither was there aught missing unto them, all the while they were in Carmel. Ask thy young men, and they will tell thee. Wherefore, let the young men find favor in thine eyes, for we come in a good day. Give, I pray thee, whatever cometh to thy hand unto thy servants and to thy son, David. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all those words in the name of David and ceased. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shearers and give it unto men of whom I know not whence they are? So David's young men turned on their way and went back and came and told him according to all these words. And David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And they went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode by the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master, and he railed at them. But the men were very good unto us, and we were not hurt, neither missed we anything as long as we went with them when we were in the fields. They were a wall unto us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what thou wilt do, for evil is determined against our master and against all his house, for he is such a worthless fellow that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready dressed and five measures of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said unto her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. And it was so as she rode on her donkey and came down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him, and he hath returned me evil for good. God do so unto the enemies of David, and more also if I leave of all that pertain to him by the morning light so much as one who passes water against a wall, which is a Hebrew expression for a, shall we say, low-quality man. 
And when Abigail saw David, she hasted and alighted from her donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me be the iniquity. And let thy handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine ears and hear thou the words of thy handmaid. Let not, my Lord, I pray thee, regard this worthless fellow, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Fool is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thy handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord, whom thou didst send. Now therefore, my Lord, as Yahweh liveth, and as thy soul liveth, seeing Yahweh hath withholden thee from blood guiltiness, and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now therefore let thine enemies, and, let them, and them that seek evil to my Lord, be as Nabal. And now this present which thy servant hath brought unto my Lord, let it be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. Forgive, I pray thee, the trespass of thy handmaid, for Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of Yahweh, and evil shall not be found in thee all thy days. And though men be risen up to pursue thee and to seek thy soul, yet the soul of my Lord shall be found in the bundle of life with Yahweh thy God, and the souls of thine enemies them shall he sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And it shall come to pass, when Yahweh shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he hath spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee prince over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood without cause, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. And when Yahweh shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thy handmaid. <coughs> And David said unto Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh the God of Israel, who sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy discretion, and blessed be thou that hast kept me this day from blood guiltiness, and from avenging myself with mine own hand. For in very deed, as Yahweh the God of Israel liveth, who hath withholding me from hurting thee, except thou hadst hasted and come to meet me, surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light so much as one who passes water against a wall. So David received of her hand that which she had brought him. And he said unto her, Go up in peace to thy house. See, I have listened to thy voice and have accepted thy person. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Wherefore she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. And it came to pass in the morning, when the wine was gone out of Nabal, that his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And it came to be about ten days later that Yahweh smote Nabal so that he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be Yahweh that hath pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and hath kept back his servant from evil, and the evil doing of Nabal hath Yahweh returned upon his own head. And David sent and spoke concerning Abigail to take her to him to wife. And when the servants of David were come to Abigail to Carmel, they spoke unto her, saying, David hath sent us unto thee to take thee to him to wife. And she arose and bowed herself with her face to the ground and said, Behold, thy handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hasted and arose and rode upon an ass or a donkey with five damsels of hers that followed her. And she went after the messengers of David and became his wife. Let us give thanks to God for the reading of his word. Father, thank you for the word that you have breathed out by your spirit. Please send that same spirit now to distribute it and divide it among us as we need it. Help us to 
understand it and give us the wisdom to know what to do with it. Plant it in our hearts that it may grow and yield fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> we are continuing our series on vocation, on the calling of mankind, including the calling on men and women and Christians. And we've covered a lot of ground from learning that our calling involves participation in the work of God, impressing the heavenly pattern into the earth, to getting a glimpse of how that might look in eternity and how it prepares us for eternity, to seeing how it particularly works out for women in glorifying their husbands and their households. And finally, last week, we looked at the idea of household calling and how we can begin to cast a vision for building a good name and knowing what that name should stand for. I want to follow up that idea by looking at what Scripture says to men about ruling their households in order to build a name, and particularly what it says about being good leaders to our wives, how are men to act in God's stead to fulfill their vocations and the vocations of their households, and what practical advice does Scripture give for obeying our calling as families and as heads of families. But in order to do that, I want to first look at how women should respond to their husband's lead and how hard that can be when both they and their husbands are sinners. You may have noticed that Many times, when God gives us instruction about the relationship between husbands and wives, such as in the curse in Genesis 3 and in 1 Peter 3, he discusses the woman first before talking about the man. So I am following his wisdom in this matter and his providence also, since last time I primarily spoke to the men, and the time before that I spoke to the ladies, which makes it natural to return to the ladies now, and next time it will be the men's turn again. Now, men, obviously, this does not mean that you get to tune out, because everything I cover today is foundational to what I will say about leading your wives next time. I want to begin, as we so often do, in Genesis. <laughs> Particularly, I want to look at the curse, because the curse is what makes marriage difficult for both men and women. So understanding it well is necessary for knowing how to overcome sin through the grace of the Lord Jesus. If we are to obey our vocations, if we are to do the work that God calls us to do, and especially if we are to successfully build a good name together, then we must understand the ditches that we are likely to fall into and the ways in which the world and the flesh and the devil will try to drag us into those ditches. And this begins with the curse. So Genesis 3, 16 to 19. Unto the woman he said, Multiplying I multiply thy pain and thy conception. In pain thou shalt bring forth children, and against thy husband shall be thy desire, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast listened unto the voice of thy woman and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In toil shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. 
and thou shalt eat the plant of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dirt thou art, and unto dirt shalt thou turn back. While God curses both the woman and the man here, you notice that he curses them differently. The curse is on their particular domains. Adam comes from the ground to work the ground, as we have seen, and so God curses the ground on his account. He makes Adam's work toilsome by setting the ground against him. It's like the earth has become obstinate and difficult and hardened against him. Deuteronomy 28, 23 says, The earth that is under thee shall be iron. The relationship between Adam and the ground, in other words, is no longer agreeable as it should have been. They are not well disposed to each other. The earth is no longer generous to Adam, willing to give itself up to him. There is opposition between them. I'm going to devote the next sermon to the consequences of this. But for now, let us turn to the curse on Eve. In the second half of that curse, I won't cover the whole thing, but I want to look at the second half because there is a kind of analogy here. We see a similar kind of hardening of relationship. We had the relationship between Adam and the ground being hardened, and here we have the relationship between him and Eve being hardened. It is Eve's attitude, her posture toward her husband, that is cursed. And there is a fitting logic to this. The curse on Adam is a curse upon his relationship to the ground because he comes from the ground and his work is oriented toward the ground. The curse on Eve is a curse upon her relationship to Adam because she comes from Adam and her work is oriented toward Adam. Just as God made Adam's work toilsome by setting the ground against him, he makes Eve's work toilsome by setting her against him. She becomes obstinate and difficult and hardened against her husband. The marriage relationship is no longer agreeable. She and Adam, just like Adam and the ground, are not well disposed to each other. She is no longer willing to give herself up to Adam. Her desire is against him, and so there is opposition between them. We should not underestimate the seriousness of this. God's curses are no light thing. The relationship between Eve and Adam is described in exactly the same terms as the relationship between Cain and sin in the very next chapter. Do you remember when God warns Cain that sin crouches at the door? He says, against thee shall be its desire, but do thou rule over it. And to Eve, he says, against thy husband shall be thy desire, and he shall rule over thee. This parallel gives us a lot of information. It tells us that just as sin desires mastery of us, the woman is cursed with a desire for mastery of her husband. What does that mean? Well, in the most basic sense, she wants to be in charge. It vexes her spirit that she does not cast the vision for the household, that she does not set the direction, that she does not make the final decisions. She wants to take this from the man because she does not trust him to do it. It is not a meaningless curse. It is a fitting curse. The man has proved himself unfitted to this task, and so the curse solidifies this feeling that the woman has. She is right 
not to trust him to do it because she, he is a fallen sinner too, who by nature follows his father Adam in failing to protect her or rule over her and then blames her for his sin. Adam is there with Eve when she is tempted, but at no point does he step in to protect her from the serpent, presumably because the serpent is actually an angel and he is afraid. And then when she takes the fruit, he doesn't say, no, babe, that's a bad idea. He watches to see if she'll die. And when she doesn't die, he thinks, huh, well, I can't have my wife knowing more about good and evil than me. And I was made to rule, so I need me that kingly wisdom. And then when God asks him what the heck he was thinking, he says, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. It's all her fault. Oh, really? Did God put her in charge? You see the connection between the abdication of Adam and the curse on Eve. There is a disordered relationship in Adam listening to his wife, allowing her to be in charge when it would lead to disaster, and God hardens that relationship into the structure of marriage when he curses Eve. But it is not a natural relationship. It is disordered. The curse creates a tension in the woman, where on the one hand, she wants control, but on the other hand, it is a disaster if she is able to take control, just as it is a disaster if sin takes control of Cain. Because it is contrary to their created natures. The woman's nature is to submit to her husband as help me, taking guidance from him, desiring to know where he is going and what he has determined for their household to do. By nature, she wants him to be the head. Women can only be happy and fulfilled when their marriages work this way, when they are submitted to the headship of a man who loves them, when they are following the guidance of a man with wisdom. They become anxious and stressed and angry and resentful whenever they are put into the position of having to act as the head of the relationship. This is why women's happiness has plummeted since the advent of feminism. They call it the paradox of declining female happiness. It is a paradox to the secular world because women are supposed to want to be like men, to have the same authority and power and responsibility. But when they get it, it turns out they hate it. One paper describes it this way, quote, by many objective measures, the lives of women in the United States have improved over the past 35 years Yet we show that measures of subjective well-being indicate that women's happiness has declined both absolutely and relative to men. End quote. In other words, not only are women much unhappier than they were in the 80s, and many papers actually go further back to the 70s, but they are also unhappier compared to men than they were back then. Another paper explains the problem further, quote, Using data across countries and over time, we show that women are unhappier than men in unhappiness and negative effect equations, irrespective of the measure used. Anxiety, depression, fearfulness, sadness, loneliness, anger. And they have more days with bad mental health and more restless sleep. 
Women are also less satisfied with many aspects of their lives, such as democracy, the economy, the state of the education and health services. They are also less happy in the moment in terms of peace and calm, cheerfulness, feeling active, vigorous, fresh, and rested." End quote. These facts have attracted a lot of attention in the secular world because to secular experts, they are perplexing. They don't make sense. They must be fixed. But they are not perplexing to people who know God's word. They are exactly what we expect to happen. Scripture predicts this, if you know how to read scripture, because when feminists talk about empowering women, what they are actually talking about is giving women over to the curse on Eve. They are talking about taking that curse and amping it up and making it a central pillar of our society instead of something to be overcome by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They're saying, it is good that you want to be the head. Women should be in charge. That is what will make them happy and fulfilled. Women are unhappy because men make bad decisions. Let us fix it by having women make the decisions. And then they change the laws to make this happen, and they are baffled when women get less and less happy and less and less fulfilled. Now again, it is absolutely true that women are often unhappy because men make bad decisions. No one who understands the fall can say otherwise. Let us not forget that every time any one of us feels unhappy, that can be laid at the feet of the one monumentally bad decision of the man, Adam. But the solution to this is not to put the women in charge. Women are not made for that. They are made to be under the protective leadership of their husbands. And so they are the happiest and most fulfilled under protective leadership, even when that protective leadership is itself fallen and imperfect and flawed. Being forced to stand alone to be the leaders, the heads, even if it is their own leaders, makes them feel unprotected and anxious and vulnerable and miserable. I hope you will not think that I am questioning women's right to agency. What I am questioning is the foolish idea that agency means complete autonomy from the hierarchy of creation. Agency actually only works when it is placed into God's hierarchy. The kind of agency that feminists offer is really slavery. It is just another kind of autonomy to pursue our sinful desires. Each one of us knows, as Christians, the bondage that comes with that kind of autonomy. To be freed to follow all of our own desires is really to become a slave to our flesh. To be set on a path that leads to death. For freedom, Christ has set us free, and we can only be free when we are submitted to him and to his hierarchy. And the world sees this as an idiotic contradiction. How can you be submitted and be free? But to those led by the Spirit, we know that it is life and health and peace, because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. All this to say, because of the curse... Women find themselves torn by paradoxical desires. They want everything to be under control, everything to meet their expectations and desires, everything to be properly ordered, and they want it so badly that they also want to overturn the proper order and take charge themselves because they feel like their husbands are not doing the job to their satisfaction, and their flesh tells them they could do it better. 
They can see the problems more clearly. Is that not true? I think it usually is. I think women are more acutely aware of all the things that are wrong. Therefore, they should be in charge, right? That is what they are cursed to feel. Women are oriented toward glorification, as we have seen, and this makes them naturally concerned about all the glory that they lack. They are much more keenly aware of everything they don't have than their husbands tend to be. Women are perfectors. They take what their husband has, and they refine it, and they magnify it, but because they are perfectors, they are always, they are always focused on what is imperfect, what needs to still be perfected. In order to perfect things, you have to know what is currently not perfect. But there is a danger in that. Sin will easily twist that focus. Why do you think the serpent went after Eve rather than Adam? One reason is that he understood that she was more susceptible to discontentment and thus more easily tempted to improve her lot in life. When you are naturally looking ahead to all the possible ideals, you are naturally always comparing, always saying, this is not good enough, always wanting more, always being dissatisfied and discontent. It is not automatic to want more, to see that things are not the way they should be, to want to improve them. That is a good thing. But it easily leads to dissatisfaction and discontentment, because that is what sin will do. It will twist your good desire to glorify your husband, to glorify your house into a wicked discontentment about what you currently have and a pernicious resentment that you don't have more. And you will blame your husband because he is responsible. He is the head. It is his job to give you more. Why isn't he doing that? Why isn't he working harder? Why isn't he more focused? Why is he not as affected by all these things that you feel annoyed and exasperated about? Why is he not more ashamed of all the ways that other people are doing better than you guys are? And why is he not humiliated at how unfavorably you, you compare to your friends? Why doesn't he do something? You want to take out your frustration on him and you want to take over from him so at least someone can be doing something. This is what the curse does. And this is why Proverbs warns us about contentious and quarrelsome and fretful women. It is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a contentious woman in a wide house. That's twice in Proverbs. It is better to dwell in a desert land than with a contentious and fretful woman. And a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. He that would restrain her restraineth the wind, and his right hand graspeth oil. Such women are like Delilah, who pressed Samson daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death, it says in Judges 16.16. 16. She nagged him not just to figurative death, but almost to literal death, for his life depended on her not knowing the secret to his strength. But ladies, let me tell you, nagging and fretting does not work. I don't mean that you can't get your husband to do something by nagging. Clearly, you can. Samson shows that. What I mean is, it doesn't solve the root issue. It does the other thing. Nagging inflames the wound between you. Nagging makes a man retreat from you, and he becomes 
sullen and uncommunicative because he doesn't want to deal with it. Always fretting and taking it out on him does not inspire him to do better. It actually motivates him to flee and to hide. And then what will happen is your frustration and your resentment will harden into disgust and contempt. And it is very difficult to recover from contempt. You can recover from anger at your husband. You can recover from frustration and lack of intimacy and differences of opinion, problems with finances, badly behaved children. You can recover from all of those things and you can rebuild your relationship to be stronger than before because you still love him. You still desire to be one flesh. You still want one togetherness. But when you despise your husband, when anger has been replaced by contempt, when hurt has been replaced by disdain, that is when you begin to hate your husband. And a marriage cannot hold together long when there is hatred in it because, to point out the obvious, a marriage is fundamentally held together by love. Think of Michal in 2 Samuel chapter 6. As the ark of Yahweh came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out at the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, and she despised him in her heart. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, you see the sarcasm, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants. As one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself, now she starts to berate him. And David said unto Michal, It was before Yahweh who chose me above thy father and above all his house to appoint me prince over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. Therefore, I will play before Yahweh, and I will be yet more vile than this, and will be base in mine own sight. But of the handmaids of whom thou hast spoken, of them shall I be had in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. And it's easy to read that final comment about her having no child and to interpret it to mean that she was judged by God, that he closed her womb. But let me suggest to you, there might be a much more mundane explanation. Michal had no child until the day of her death because she never shared a bed with David again. Their marriage was dead because of her contempt for him. The worst part about all of this is that you can always find in any man something that is worthy of contempt. It is morally wrong for a wife to have contempt for her husband or to want to take control from her husband, but her reasons for doing so are often factually true. Sometimes these desires are sinful responses to prior sin. Your husband is fallen too, and you aren't the only one who was cursed, and God knows this, and so he gives instruction in Scripture for how redeemed women are to respond to husbands who lead poorly. I don't want you to think that I'm giving the husbands a pass, believe me. We will talk about that next time. But regardless of how a man fails to lead well, how a man sins against his wife, how a man taints and tarnishes his own name, Scripture directs his wife into certain paths in response. And those paths are directly at right angles to the curse. Remember, the curse wants her uh, makes her want to take matters into her own hands and grasp for control. It sets her desire against him and seeks the place over him. But in 1 Samuel 25, we see how the curse is redeemed in the example of Abigail. Here we have a very clear case of a wicked husband 
and a holy wife. He is a fool, and as we say in our family, a blottus. She is full of godly wisdom. She is an example to us, a wife truly fit for a king, a real-life model of a Proverbs 31 woman. From her, we learn a great deal about how wives should respond to wickedness in their husbands. Now, obviously, this is an extreme example, but the extremes help us to see the situation most clearly so that when we face less extreme situations, we can figure out how to apply the same principles in our own lives. Obviously, 1 Samuel 25 is a long passage. I don't, ex- I don't intend to explain every detail. We could fruitfully do an entire series on it. Today, I just want to focus on how Abigail covers her husband's sin. What we see Abigail do here is the exact opposite, actually, of what we see Adam do in the garden. It is an ironic inversion. Adam throws his wife under the bus when confronted with God's judgment. Abigail throws herself under the bus when confronted with David's judgment. Even though Nabal's wickedness is truly not her fault, she claims responsibility and asks David to treat it as her fault because it is her household's fault and she is a representative of the household so that she may make it right with the gift that David deserves. When we read this, I think a natural question that arises in our minds is whether Abigail was not being a bit rebellious or insubordinate to her husband. I think this is very much not the question that the text wants us to ponder, however. Abigail, as Nabal's wife, was the manager of his household. She had discretion to dispose of his goods as she saw fit. The issue is not whether she was being insubordinate to Nabal's stated desire. The question we should be asking is why Abigail went against Nabal's wishes in the first place. And the answer is that she is covering over her husband's sin even when he is doing his best to make it as public and obtrusive as possible. Upon me, my Lord, upon me be the iniquity, she pleads with David. She is seeking her husband's honor, even though he has none, by giving what honor she has in its place. She is seeking his good, even though she knows he is evil. Why would she do this? There's no indication in the text that Abigail has much affection for Nabal. I don't think it is because she's just so very in love with him. Everything in the text points the other way. He is depicted as a completely unreasonable, unpleasant man. And Abigail is fully aware of this. She says as much to David. It seems very implausible to imagine that there is this great romance between them, that there's this amazing chemistry that makes her want to save him despite herself. She isn't in love with him. He is an absolute boor, a complete stinker. Yet her response to having such an awful husband is not bitterness or contempt. It is not to complain or wallow in self-pity. It is not to sulk or mope or to fret or quarrel with him, trying to convince him or nag him into doing the right thing. It is to seek his good directly by her own conduct. If we return to the curse, remember that I said, just like the earth is no longer generous to Adam and willing to give itself to him, so Eve is no longer generous to Adam and willing to give herself to him, and she instead wants mastery of him. 
But here we see Abigail doing her level best to reverse the curse. She is generous to Nabal for no other reason than because he is her husband. She loves him because he is her husband. She is willing to give herself for him to David, standing in his place and taking his fault upon herself because he is her husband. Not for anything in him that deserves it or is worthy of it, but because he is her husband. Abigail is commended in this text for having good understanding and for being beautiful But her chief beauty is her gentle and quiet spirit. We know that because we know that beauty in the beauty in a woman without discretion is like a gold ring in the snout of a pig. She is explicitly commended for her discretion. She is beautiful on the inside. Her understanding of God's ways, her insight and reflection upon God's law has produced a character of self-sacrificial love that has come to understand what marriage is. It is a character that seeks the good of her husband by doing the right thing in his place just because he is her husband. Notice that she does the right thing without telling him. Now it's easy to imagine that Peter has this episode in the back of his mind when he writes, Ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands that even if any obey not the word, They may, without the word, be gained by the conduct of their wives, beholding your pure conduct coupled with fear. Think about Abigail's situation. This is not likely to be a marriage that she is happy in. It is probably miserable. She probably suffers being married to a man who obeys not the word, especially considering the great difference between them in terms of their understanding of the word. She clearly worships Yahweh, very hard to imagine Nabal does. When she hears about how Nabal has responded to David, she could think, wow, this is it. This is my chance to be free of this fool, to get out of this situation. But that is not what she thinks. What she thinks is, how can I recover the name of my husband? It's not much of a name, but she is determined to glorify it as best she can. She is determined that it will be a better name thanks to her efforts. His identity is bound up with hers by marriage, but this is not just a legal truth to her. She is seeking to make it an embodied reality, an existential thing. She doeth him good and not evil all the days of her life, as Proverbs 31 tells us. This is the spirit of service that God calls wives to. It is not always an easy calling because your own cursed flesh recoils against it and your husband's sin stands as an obstacle in your way. It is not easy to do him good all the days of your life, especially when he is not doing good himself, when he is not doing good to you. It is not easy, but it is possible through the grace of God, just as it is possible for a man to suffer the loss of his entire family and health and yet not charge God with evil, as we read about in Job. These things were written for our encouragement. Abigail was a real woman just like you. And through the grace of God and through her careful reflection on the scriptures, she was able to seek the good of a husband much worse, I hope, than any of yours. 
Each of you ladies knows the ways in which your husbands are prone to wickedness and foolishness, and I hope you will agree with me that none of them are a Nabal. And therefore, I hope you will agree with me also that if Abigail could love her husband and generously seek his good name, despite it literally meaning fool, it is something that can be done in all of our households. Next time I intend to speak to you men about how we can all keep ourselves from the errors of Nabal and not cause our wives to have to cover our sins or test their willingness to do so, for that is really to invert the marriage relationship. We are called to give ourselves up for them, not vice versa. Far better to be building a truly good name for our wives to glorify than a shoddy name that our wives must do their best to repair. So next time, God willing, we will examine how to do that. For now, let us sing our next hymn.